Thank you, men. Take your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Acts chapter 14, and let's stand together. Acts chapter 14 for our scripture reading, and uh, thank you for the good music and uh, for the great spirit already in chapel this morning. I really enjoyed uh, that earlier special, uh, hearing Brother Johnson play the piano on, oh, I think it was Oh Glorious Day, beautiful accompaniment, and I'm so thankful for Brother Johnson's uh, leadership in our music department. And if you're a pianist, I would watch him closely, and not just his talent, but his spirit. Uh, he's got a tremendous spirit and uh, somebody that you can really learn from. And the guitar player with you, th that was beautiful this morning. Thank you for miking that up properly. We have a girl in the sound booth. Two girls up in the sound booth. So it sounds really good. I think we should switch to all girl sound men. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, it, the sound was great, and uh, the piano and the guitar accompaniment was beautiful. And I, sometimes you see people, and they're so insecure, and they want to be like the other big mega church in town or something. And I've seen some young Baptists, and they think the only way to get their church going is to get a couple people with jeans with holes in them and, you know, kind of uh, uh, some, some leather jacket, you know, and they'd kind of jump around. And, and uh, it's kind of like freak show Baptist church when I look at some of it, you know, it's just kind of the strangest looking thing. And uh, they think the whole answer is just kind of jumping around and kind of trying to uh, be like a, like a rock group or something. And uh, it's fun when you can hear different instruments, whether it's a guitar, whether it's a trombone or a trumpet, whatever, uh, that's really used to excellence and to the glory of God and uh, something that, uh, like we heard there. And so thank you for that. I do want to remind everybody to be in prayer for Resurrection Weekend. I mentioned it last night to the men. That's coming up really now just uh, in the next several weeks. You'll be hearing a lot about it next Sunday. And uh, we're praying for over 1,000 first-time guests and 250 souls to be saved on that one day. Those of you that have dorm devotions, if you'll pray with me about that, and really uh, staff and students, we ought to all have guests that day, and that ought to be our goal. And I want you to pray uh, toward that end as uh, we move ahead into the spring season. And then I want to really remind many of you as you're looking to the summer uh, to prayerfully consider the Jewish evangelism opportunity. This is the summer for it, with so many Jews being killed. Even yesterday in Israel, again, two more died. There's a sensitivity. And uh, see Dr. Rasmussen on this. I know many of you have already signed up. And uh, we're very, very excited and very grateful uh, that you could have such an opportunity to be in a good church in the region of this country and then uh, to minister to uh, to the Jewish people. Romans 1.16, to the Jew first is what the Bible actually says. And here's, here's an opportunity. <clears throat> we never really had that as a church. I'm so glad we do. And then to have your entire uh, next semester paid for, room, board, and tuition, unheard of. Great opportunity for you. And uh, then don't forget too, Another opportunity through West Coast this year uh, is through our missions program. I was talking briefly with Brother Smithy yesterday, and I uh, appreciate Brother Smithy's love for missions. And uh, as we were talking about Columbia, and I did some research, I always get interested in making sure it's a quality trip, and it looks like a great opportunity to be with one of our graduates in Columbia. And if not this summer, I would encourage every student, uh, one time while you're in college, to have that experience and to get get down, it just opens your eyes to the potential uh, of uh, soul winning in a foreign country. And even if you wind up pastoring and such, it gives you a better comprehension of how to support missions. So uh, these are some great things, and I hope you'll take advantage of those. 
Today, I'd like to preach to you on the subject, what do you do when rocks are thrown at you? What do you do when rocks are thrown at you? And if you intend to stand up for God in today's culture, they will be thrown, either physically or in some other way. And I want to help you today to learn how to deal with the criticisms, the challenges. Uh, if you plan to graduate from this college and, and just compromise everything we've tried to teach you, and if you plan to uh, you know, get, uh, you know, get some uh, watered-down version and drop the name Baptist and preach psychobabble and just kind of you know, wear some sunglasses and a ball cap so you can relate, then I don't think you'll have uh, much opposition. But if you intend to do what the Bible says and stand on the truth and not compromise, you may have sometimes some people that push back a little bit, and I want to try to help you with what do you do when those days come from a day in the life of the Apostle Paul, Acts 14, verse number 8. And there sat a man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, The gods are come down unto us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before uh, their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways." Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. And there came thither certain from Antioch and uh, Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Let's pray. Father, teach us more about your ministry as we study this missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Help us to learn what it's like when we suffer persecution uh, to stand back up and continue serving. And teach us, Lord, not to be soft, but to be people that have strong convictions. And I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, sometimes we mention the word missionary journey and people might think about something like, you know, uh, the travel and the, tr and the climate and maybe buying some souvenirs and, and having a good time with friends. And, and certainly those components are a part of uh, traveling and seeing uh, new places. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, if you study the New Testament in the book of Acts and you study the experience of the Apostle Paul, you'll find that for the most part, missionary journeys are not just buying trinkets and going down a river on a little raft of some kind, uh, but in fact, 
when you, when you oppose the sin and the wickedness of godless cultures, many times you're going to have stones thrown at you simply for the stand that you take. And we see in Paul's life that despite his best intentions to serve the Lord, uh, he was often misunderstood, beaten, uh, imprisoned, and even stoned. Now what I have found in dealing with God's people for several decades now is that when adversity comes into people's lives, including my own, normally we want God immediately to do a removing job. We want God to remove the adversity, to take away the problem. Uh, we want instant healing and instant blessing and instant uh, processing through the difficult time financially. People don't really want, none of us want, trials. And when we have adversity, we want God to do a removing job. But God wants to do an improving job. God is interested in the season of trial, in helping you and helping me to become stronger for the next battle ahead. And that's what we learn in the life of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 14. I want you to notice three phases of this day in the life of the missionary. First of all, we're going to see this morning the revelation of the power of God. How many of you want to see God's power revealed in your own ministry? Amen? You want to see people saved and lives changed and marriages brought back together and teenagers throw away uh, their, uh, uh, their uh, wicked uh, rock and roll music and, and drugs and so forth. I'd like to see enough power today to get a couple of girls in here to stop texting on their phone while I stand up here and talk. That would be an initial demonstration of God's power in this service. And uh, thank you so much. But all of us want to see God work in people's lives. And here we see today the revelation of the power of God. I want you to see that in verse 8. It says, And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent at his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. Now here we see something, and when you consider the modern-day faith healer hoax, I want you to look at this passage in contrast, okay? I want you to see, first of all, a real need. The Bible says in verse 8, this man was impotent in his feet. He was without strength. This man was lame from his mother's womb. So this isn't someone that, you know, had a migraine headache. This isn't someone that, you know, their left leg was one-eighth of an inch longer than their right leg. It was not somebody that had a contrived issue. This is someone that from their birth had never walked. How many of you would agree with me? That's a real life need right there, okay? This is somebody that really had a problem. And then we see not only a real need, but we see, secondly, a real power. We're going to see the revelation of the power of God. Verse 9, the same heard Paul speak who steadfastly beholding him. By the way, don't ever get so busy in life that you can walk right by someone who is suffering and not even notice it. And Paul said uh, here, the word of God says that he was steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed. I'm going to teach our staff a lesson this afternoon on, uh, in essence, how to read a room, how to, how to be present when you are present in a place, how to see things that need to be seen and how to meet needs that need to be, need to be met. I'm afraid that some of us 
Uh, we could be in this very church here. Somebody could sit in your section on Sunday who's as lost as a goose and some of us would not even speak to them or be sensitive to walk them down the aisle or even ask them if they're saved or maybe even welcome them. I appreciated Brother Rabin's admonition in some of those areas last night. Sometimes we are in the room focusing on our appearance, how we look, how we're perceived. We need to get to lunch. We need to do that. What we've got to do. And sometimes we can miss some very close opportunities right next to us. And here we see in the life of the Apostle Paul just an illustration that somehow this impotent man caught his attention. And somehow he even sensed, I believe this man wants to be saved. I believe he has faith to be healed. You know, I've had experiences like that on mission fields and out soul winning and and when you're observing and when you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit and when you're watching the spirit of a man or a woman, you can sometimes sense that, you know, this person, they need the Lord and, it, and, and God's preparing their heart and He's crossing our paths at this time. And, and that's the essence of walking in the Spirit. And the Bible tells us that Paul perceived this. He had, he had a real power. Verse 10, Paul says with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and he walked. Now, our, our goal to Today is not necessarily to copy the experiences of the book of Acts, but we should have a great desire to walk in the necessary power of God as they did in the book of Acts. And by the way, the same God that healed in the book of Acts can heal today. We don't have the apostolic gift of healing, but we serve the same Savior as did the Apostle Paul. And he is used of God to bring this man to his feet. And God's power is absolutely necessary in the ministry for all of us today. Ephesians 3 and 20, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Listen, you and I must have God's power when we awaken, when we're out soul winning, when we're on the bus ministry, when we're teaching a class, we must pray, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Ephesians 6.10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Thank God that when we perceive real spiritual needs, that God has real power to match that need. And so when you open up Acts 14 and you see Paul here in Lystra, the first thing we see is that there's this revelation of the power of God. And what a great thing that is to see God at work in any mission field, in any place. But then I want you to see something bizarre that happens. And this is what I mean by strange cultures and learning about different places. Notice, if you're taking notes, not only the revelation of the power of God, but the refusal of pride. Now see what happens in verse 11. When the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas, Jupiter, and Paul Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the chief priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garland of the gates and would have done a sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles uh, Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions and preach unto you that you should turn from uh, these vanities unto the living God. Now always remember that pride... Pride 
is something that is repulsive to our God. And here was an opportunity for Paul to be filled up with himself. But the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 5, Submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Now let's just take a look at this passage for a moment and try to understand the pagan cultures of the first century. And if you ever visit a place like Ephesus, or if you ever visit even a place like Rome, you will see the goddess Nike, and you will see the, the statues to Mercurius and Apollo and Zeus. You'll see it in Corinth. You'll see it wherever the Roman world ruled and reigned. You'll see this paganism and this superstition and this idea that the gods could come down at any moment. And sometimes you'll watch a movie related to the Roman world, and you'll hear them say, by the gods, Octavius. And they're, they're giving credence to these uh, pagan deities. And so here we see the approach of these pagan worshipers. Imagine you being on the mission field and, and, and you just led a guy to the Lord and, and the, perhaps the demons that had gripped him are, are fleeing now and perhaps uh, the hatred that had gripped him is gone and, uh, and, and his life is changed. And, 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 and then the, the chief of the tribe there in Africa, he comes up to you and, and he's just sure that you're one of the, one of the uh, real important people of his uh, false religion. And so these pagan worshipers come and in this bizarre action, uh, they apparently had some folklore that, uh, that the gods of Zeus and Hermes would somehow return someday uh, into their midst. And so uh, here we see the approach of these pagan workers as they come and they, and they want to do worship. And notice that if you would, it says there in verse number 13, the priest of Jupiter, which was before the city, brought oxen and garland unto the gates and would have done sacrifice unto them. Imagine that. Imagine that here we have Paul and Barnabas. They're simply doing this uh, deed of healing and bringing the gospel's message. And, and now, uh, suddenly, they're bringing the, the, uh, the fatted calf, so to speak, uh, to sacrifice to these two gods. And they're bringing garland and other decorations. And they're going to have a, a worship feast. And you know, look at if Paul would have been in it for the money, if he would have been in it just for the fame... He and Barnabas could have said, hey, hey, look at this. They want to worship us. Bring a palm branch over here and fan me. Bring some grapes and feed me. Let, let's not go any farther, Barnabas. This will work for us. They think we are God. By the way, be careful of the pride that can come into the life of ministry. When you are privileged to preach the Word of God and someone comes to you and says something like, that was a great message. First of all, it may not have been a great message. They may just be a really nice Christian, right? And secondly, if they say that, and if you're even hoping that it might have been, it's always proper to give God the glory for anything good that happens in your life. It's always proper to give God the glory. I remember when this building was finished and we had some newspapers that came and they wanted to interview because the building was finished during a terrible time in the economy and they wanted to know how we raised the money, how we got the building done. And I, I, I said, there's two things I want in the article. If you won't put these in, I'm not going to answer any questions. I said, so we got to get that straight right from the bat, right from the get-go. And I said, the first thing I want you to know is that we give God all the glory and secondly, we give our people all the credit. 
And I want to I show you from this passage the importance of deferring the praise to the proper object, which is our God. They refuse to be worshipped. In fact, he said in verse number 15, he said, what are you doing? He says, why do ye these things? We are men of like passions. Preachers, never forget who you are. You are a sinner saved by the grace of God. You say, but, but you hold the office of the pastor, and I do. And it is an office that is uh, God-given, and it is an office worthy of I believe, of, of esteem and honor. But I want to say something. In that office, my one desire and your one desire should be to give God the glory for the great things that he does. They refused worship. In fact, they urged them to take away the vanity in verse number 15 in the Bible. The Bible tells us that as, as they were speaking this to them, uh, that they literally take their clothes in verse 14 and they rent them. They tear their clothes, which was a Jewish symbolism to say, we will have nothing to do with this. We will not receive your praise. The apostles teach us a great lesson about giving God the glory any religion apart from Christ is a religion of vanity. And he's doing his best to point them to the creator God of the universe. And he gives to them a message here, beginning in verse number 16, about God's long-suffering and about God's provision. And, and, and yet with those sayings, it says that he barely restrained them. We see in this passage the revelation of the power of God. An opportunity, perhaps, to become puffed up. <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm kind of a, one of the better expositors in the school. Well, yeah, you know, just, I don't know where I got the, the voice, but if you'd like me to, I'd be glad to caress your eardrums with my velvet tones. Remember that whatever gifts you have are gifts from God, and we must give God the glory. There is a revelation of power followed by a refusal of pride, and then what I want you to catch today, the heart of it all, the response of persecution. The response to persecution. Now, men and women, if you get anything out of this message, listen to me for the next five minutes. There are many things I often think to myself, I wish they would have taught me that in Bible college. <laughs> and I sometimes think it's because I attended a Bible college where the president was not a pastor, the the, the locale was not a local church situation. It was, it was all being taught from an academic standpoint. And I'd like to share something with you from a biblical standpoint, but also from an experiential standpoint in these next few moments as we see the proper response. Notice it says in verse 19, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul. Notice, first of all, the stoning of Paul to the point that they supposed he was dead. Many believe he did die at this moment. But I want you to get a picture in your mind right now. I want you, first of all, to realize persecution is relentless. There came those from the previous towns, from Iconium. They came, the Jews came, the Bible tells us here in verse number uh, 19. From Antioch and Iconium, the first two towns where Paul had preached. And the Jews hated him in those towns. They were disgusted at the message of the gospel. They wanted him to be dead. They come the entire distance now to Lystra. At least a day, day and a half journey. When they arrive at Lystra, they're there to do nothing but cause trouble. 
And there are people that live for that. There are people that go on the internet for one reason, to just cause trouble, to gossip, uh, to do all they can to demean. And listen today, we see this in our culture. We live in a loud culture, and a hateful culture, and a godless culture. And, and we see that constantly uh, the things that are pure are twisted, and, and motives are questioned. And that's what Paul was dealing with 2,000 years ago. And the Bible tells us that they, they come, and I want you to see the key phrase in verse 19, who persuaded the people. Would you say that with me, please? Who persuaded the people. And I want you to listen to me. Never put your confidence in the people. Always be grateful for the people. Don't have a mistrusting spirit toward people. You must trust people. But never put your confidence in the people. Put your confidence in God. And understand the picture here. The very people who just hours before were worshiping the apostle, were killing the fatted calf, were bringing the gifts, the very People who said, you're the greatest religious leader. In fact, you're not just a religious leader. You're a God come down from heaven. Those very people took the stones to murder the man they were worshiping hours before. I remember back in probably the early 90s, a season of growth where our church was growing by several hundred a year, and God was blessing in a tremendous way. Somehow, subconsciously in my mind, I developed a spirit of not just love for our church, but almost just, just a pride that had a tinge of carnality to it. It was a fleshly kind of a pride in the sense, I would say, boy, we have some great people. Man, I'll tell you what. We're up to 100 missionaries now. and Boy, we've got a great church, and these are just wonderful people. And they are. I mean, believe me, they were wonderful people. The, the problem wasn't with the people. It was with the paradigm of the pastor. Because there were moments in time where I was putting too much confidence in the people and not enough in prayer, not enough in trusting God. And I'll tell you this. You put enough confidence in people... God will allow just enough of them to throw just enough stones to remind you that it's not the people that keep the church going, it's God that keeps the church going. It may be a hate letter, it may be a situation where people get all out of sorts about something, but God has a way of reminding you, don't you worship the people, you worship the Christ of the people. And always remember from this passage the fickleness of human nature. The very people that were saying, love you, man, with you, man. Man, bring the fatted calf. I mean, the, these guys, we've been waiting for you to come down from the heavens. And we'll worship you. And then not too long after that, they were stoning them. Well, what do you do when rocks are thrown at you? How, how do you respond? There's no union for pastors. You know, somebody said, well, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm not going to be an independent Baptist then. If you're going to get hate mail and, and uh, if you just stand up there and preach a hard message and somebody gets offended, I'm just going to have to water down my message, and many do. 
I'm not going to let my family go through that. I mean, if they're going to get ticked off because I preach the Christian life, the holy life, and I preach the Baptist distinctives, I'll, we'll just become a community church. I can't handle the pressure. And pragmatism is why so many people compromise, because they need the accolades of people. If you're with me this morning, say amen. amen. You better decide that you're the servant of God and not the servant of men. Because there's a lot of young men out there today whose whole desire is the acceptance of them, themselves. And because of that, they live a life of compromise. And because of that, I meet them 10 years later and I go, what in the world? Who is that young person? Somewhere along the line, they just decided the applause of men was that important. Thank God for the Apostle Paul. Thank God for many of your pastors who have paid a price to be true to God's Word, to send you to this Bible college. And yes, they get hate mail, your pastor does. And yes, they have times when it's difficult to stand. But you ought to thank God that they're still standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God that they are keeping their eyes on Him. Well, notice the response of the, to the persecution. We see the stoning. Notice, secondly, the steadfast of Paul. Verse 20, verse 20, how be it, somebody say that word with me, how be it, how be it, as the disciples stood round about him. Now there's a lot of preaching in this verse, and I won't take all the time, but let's get that little picture in our mind, all right? Brother Bert, come up here, you be the, you be the dead Apostle Paul for a minute, okay? <laughs> Brother Malachi, Brother Joy, you come up here, and we're going to be the church at, at Lystra, lay down. You, you play that part pretty well, okay? All right, here's the Apostle Paul. I mean, he, he's just been stoned. You, you look a little too good for having just been stoned, but there you go. That's better. All right, good. Yeah. All right. There he is. Now, now let's, let's see the verse. Verse number 20 says, How be it, how be it, as the disciples stood round about him. Here, here I want to say something. These are small thoughts, but get it. Thank God for the disciples who stand with the man of God when he's attacked. If you ever get just a whiff of the fact that your pastor is getting the what for from some person, I'm not, again, I'm not talking about a pastor who's sinned or some problem. I'm not speaking to that issue. I'm saying if you have a godly, faithful pastor who loves his wife and he preaches the Word of God and he helped you get here and you ever sniff out that somebody's given him a hard time, just go stand by him. Just write him a note. Just write him an email. I got, a, I got an email this morning, first thing I read, 4 o'clock this morning, from a graduate in South Carolina, Pastor Chapel. I graduated in 2017. I know that it's not always easy. I just want to say thank you for staying married, for staying in the pulpit, for keeping our college the same. Thank you. Thank you. By the way, it takes some character to learn how to communicate like that. What was he doing? Maybe he sniffed something out. Maybe he went to some preacher's meeting and heard somebody say some, uh, some uh, crooked little thing. I don't know what caused him to do that, but I know what he was doing. He was standing round about and saying, I just want you to know I'm, I'm standing with you. Thank God for the church at Lister. And then I want you to hear this. There was in that early formative group that I'm calling a church at Lystra, 
There was a teenager. There was a teenager. If you know his name, say it. Timothy. Timothy's first class in Bible college was a stoning. His first youth group activity, it wasn't paintball. It was real rocks. And Timothy was with this little group looking at this man, and he's realizing, wow, that's the ministry. You know, these days to get people to come to church, to come to Bible college, we have to show pictures of the ocean and sailboats and people in slow motion going along to the spring banquet. Because we have to portray that everything is beautiful. Always. Timothy's portrayal of ministry is a dead guy. And that's what I meant when I said there's a lot of things they didn't tell me in Bible college. And they stood round about him. Howbeit the disciples stood round about him. Notice what it says. He rose up. He rose up. Hey, he rose up. What do you do when rocks are thrown at you? You get up. You don't write retaliatory emails. You don't call a union. You don't quit being a Baptist. You don't get angry at whoever threw the stone. You don't find yourself wallowing in the pity. You don't go to some uh, guru and find out, you know, 59 steps and 49 sabbaticals later, maybe you'll go to the ministry. Hey, the first thing you've got to do is get up. Get a Bible in your hand. Get some gospel tracts in your hand. He rose up. And that's what you do. So get up. <laughs> he rose up. I don't know when you'll have your first rock thrown at you. It will likely come the first time you succeed at something. But as you begin to have the blessings of God, they're going to come. And you'll have a choice. You'll either compromise. You'll become complacent. You'll say, I ain't preaching that text anymore because I got hate mail over it. Do you think that for 38 years, every time I preach on giving for four weeks, everybody just says, that is great. Thanks for not just stopping at the tithe. Thanks for challenging me to give like 40%. That is so awesome. Amazingly, most people are grateful. And as I preach Sunday, their care has flourished again. But not everybody's always happy about it. Sometimes a rock or two will get thrown. So what do I do? Do I say, well, I better not preach on giving this year because, you know, we preached on it last year. Like, what if somebody doesn't like it? And suddenly you stopped being God's man and you started being your own man. He rose up. But he didn't just rise up. Notice what it says here. It says, he rose up. He came into the city. Look at, he faced the problem. Now, I, I would have loved to have been there. You guys go back to the city now. Not you. You stay here. You go back to the city. We have to let the city get back there so you can go to it. Imagine the Apostle Paul. He already had runny eyes. Now he's got dirt in whatever was running. His clothes are all torn. 
He looks like he's just probably come out of a grave. Blood everywhere. It would have been probably wiser like to go to a hospital or McDonald's or to your mother. But not the Apostle Paul. He wanted to go look them in the eye. He wanted them to see a Christian. He wanted Timothy to see a real Christian. So he went back into the city. And you can just say hello to those men and have a seat, Apostle Paul. Now listen up. When the trials come, you're going to have a choice. You'll have a choice, some of you, while you're in Bible college. You can go home to Mama. You can change your degree to veterinarian because horses need to go to heaven. Some of you aren't sure about that theologically. You can just ask Brother Hauk about that one later. (laughs) Or you'll say, greater people than me have paid a big price so that others could hear the gospel. I'm going to go back and I'm going to let them know it's going to take more than a few rocks to get me out. Notice what else he does. This just blows my mind. Verse 20. He rose up. He came into the city. And the next day he went to his mother's house. Is that what it says? No. The next day he went to the hospital. Is that what it says? No. The next day he said, Timothy, you're in charge. Peace. No. The next day the man that had just been stoned, who has, who knows what kind of broken what, walks 40 miles to the next city to preach the same message in the same way for the glory of God. What are you going to do when the rocks are thrown at you? Is that going to be your out? Or are you going to say, God, you sent your son to the cross. You sent me to this city. Help me to be faithful to you until you call me home. 